Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, unprecedented housing costs over the last year have made housing unaffordability worse across the Northern Front Range. It was the places that were already very expensive to rent in that had the biggest price increases. Coming up, we'll explore housing unaffordability across urban and rural communities in our region and examine how public lands might factor into the solution. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. It's the first of the month, and rent payments are due for the nearly 17% of Coloradans who rent. And according to a recent analysis from Headwaters Economics, a Montana-based independent think tank, the recent and largely unprecedented growth in housing costs over the last year has impacted renters more than homeowners, especially when it comes to housing unaffordability. Of the counties that are experiencing housing cost increases this year, 92% were already unaffordable for renters, compared to 18% for homeowners. Joining us to explain that gap, what it means, and how we got here, is Megan Lawson, an economist with Headwaters Economics, who worked on that very analysis. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. To start, I think we need to talk about housing unaffordability. Can you tell us what that is and what we need to understand here? Sure. Well, we had to come up with a definition for unaffordable housing, and we defined it as when more than 30% of households are paying at least 30% of their household income on either rents or on their mortgages. And so we identified those as places as being particularly rent burdened or mortgage burdened. And why was this something that you wanted to look into? Well, we knew from another analysis that, that we did looking at the increase in housing prices nationally, that there were unprecedented price increases really across the country. Um, and the next step in that analysis was to ask who was being most affected by those price increases within those communities. And so we wanted to see what was happening for renters and what was happening for homeowners um, to get a better sense for the people who are being most affected. Yeah, it feels like we hear a lot about homeowners, but not as much maybe about people who do rent. Right, exactly. And the challenging thing for renters um, is that homeowners are have a predictable and stable mortgage payment, whereas renters will be subject to the end of their lease, um, to rents rising, um, or landlords uh, changing hands and the houses changing hands and the new landlords increasing their prices. Um, and so renters are going to be much more vulnerable to housing market dynamics. All right. Well, bring us up to speed then on this rise in housing prices that we've seen over the last year or so. How does this factor into what you looked at? Well, we wanted to see what was happening for renters in these places um, that experienced unprecedented price increases. Um, Were these price increases dramatically higher in places that used to be affordable? Um, Was our first question, like, did they go from 
an affordable community to rent in to now an unaffordable community. But what was really shocking to us was to see that it was the places that were already very expensive to rent in that had the biggest price increases. Um, so we looked at that impact on renters and um, so we're very surprised to see that it was nearly all communities that were already unaffordable for rentals. But then we looked at homeownership and we thought we expected to see a really similar pattern um, for homeowners, but we did not see that dramatic price increase in places that were already unaffordable for homeownership. And can you give us a general understanding of what's driving this rise in prices and why it was that already expensive communities to rent in got more expensive? Yeah, there are a lot of factors that are contributing to this. Um, and, you know, it's not a, the price increases during the pandemic have grabbed all the headlines and grabbed a lot of attention. But the trends that we're seeing have been simmering for a long time and really started during the recovery from the housing bust and um, after the Great Recession. Um, because after that, the construction industry was understandably a little shy about, um, about building. And so the pace of construction has been slower than the pace of population growth really since the Great Recession. Um, it's also been challenging. Um, a lot of people left the construction industry during the Great Recession because um, you know it's a can be a challenging sector to work in, and so the construction industry has had a difficult time hiring um, for the trades and and for laborers, and <clears throat> so it's been difficult to build enough housing even in places where there is the demand. Um, so those are long simmering um, trends have meant that housing supply is very inadequate for the demand that we have right now. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with economist Megan Lawson from Headwaters Economics. Uh, of course, this unaffordability rise is not just happening along Colorado's front range. It's really happening all over the country. Um, but let's turn for a moment to talk about unaffordability in more rural areas. Your analysis shows that it's also a pretty key issue for many rural parts of the country. Are they facing similar problems? It is. And that was um, another eye-popping finding from this analysis. Um, you know, we expected a lot of pressure on housing prices in cities and in the suburbs and in resort and mountain communities. Um, but what was very interesting uh, and caught our attention was the impact on outlying areas. Um, whether these are bedroom communities that historically have been affordable. Um, and so people commute from those communities into the employment centers. Um, and now they're experiencing price increases. We're also, um, a lot of these places, as people are getting pushed out of the city centers and uh, the suburban areas to seek more affordable housing, in a lot of these outlying areas, they simply don't have the supply um, to absorb people coming in, or if people are displaced, um, if renters are displaced in these rural communities, there isn't a lot of rental stock for them to move into, so they don't have a lot of options. So there are uh, particular pressures on rentals um, and, and renters in rural places. 
Right. And are there certain problems that are more unique to rural communities or perhaps uh, places like ski resort communities? Yes, they have. You know, one of the challenges is just simply um, there isn't a place to sprawl into, especially if we're looking at, uh, at mountain communities. There isn't a lot of nearby available land where a community can kind of expand. Um, and there are some efforts to increase density and increase the possibility to um, build more dense housing in the center of these uh, mountain towns that are kind of hemmed in um, just by the mountains around them. Um, but that can be a challenging process because it really is a different perspective on the aesthetics and how these communities traditionally have grown, which is single family housing. Well, Megan, another element of your analysis was natural disasters and how they play into the housing crisis. Of course, in our region, the primary threat is wildfires. Talk about this and how natural disasters affect some of the ongoing issues in housing. Yes, it's especially when there's an acute disaster like wildfire, uh, people are displaced from their homes in that immediate area. Oftentimes they might be looking for a relatively short-term solution. So they want to rent in a nearby area uh, while they're rebuilding their home. Um, we also see people's just finances being disrupted um, when they're displaced by, by fire. Um, and so we see an increase in defaults and mortgages. Um, and so people are move out of their homes, maybe that they own and into rental housing. And so we see a lot of pressure on uh, the rental housing market in the areas immediately surrounding places that were affected by wildfire. And um, this hasn't been recently a, a big issue in Colorado. Um, the communities have been largely spared, but we've definitely seen, seen that uh, very acutely in California. Um, and so we have been able to see kind of how these dynamics play out. Well, with these issues of rent affordability, I'm wondering what kind of impact does that have on the economy overall? Uh, you know, basically, if unaffordability doesn't change from where it is now or gets worse, what could we see happen? Well, I hate to be doom and gloom, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think what we've, what we have seen is, um, you know, what's happened this summer where the challenge of unaffordable housing has really become front and center, especially for the business community and small business owners who can't find employees who can afford to live and work in their community. And so I think possibly a slightly silver lining um, is unaffordable housing problems were largely hidden um, and it was easy for a lot of people to ignore. Um, but as we're seeing uh, businesses with signs that say shortened hours due to staffing issues or businesses that aren't able to open or operate, it's really raising the profile of how essential affordable housing and workforce housing is for a community's economy. And I think without addressing these challenges, um, you know, it's the small business owners, main streets, um, that are going to be most severely affected. Megan Lawson is an economist with Headwaters Economics. Megan, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. 
In just a moment, we'll hear about one possible solution to the affordable housing crisis that some politicians are pushing for in the Mountain West. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The West is facing an affordable housing crisis. The region is growing, and home prices in some places have skyrocketed by more than a third over the past year. That's prompting politicians on both sides of the aisle to push for a controversial solution, selling off some public lands to build more affordable homes. Nate Hedgie with the Mountain West News Bureau has a closer look. Hidden Valley south of Las Vegas is an open, dry stretch of desert scrub and craggly beige mountains. For some, it looks like a landscape from the movie Dune, but Kyle Rohrink loves it. Right now, we're looking out at a beautiful tract of the, uh, of the Mojave Desert. Rohrink is with the environmental nonprofit Great Basin Water Network. He says undeveloped public lands like this are really important. The plants that grow here help suck carbon out of the air, and it can also be home to threatened or endangered species, like the desert tortoise. We're standing in primo desert tortoise habitat. But if Nevada lawmakers get their way, most of this wide, wild valley may soon transform into a massive subdivision about 20 miles south of the Las Vegas Strip. What we're looking out at right now would be bulldozed for thousands and thousands of, uh, of homes and shopping malls and all that stuff that, that's associated with uh, urban sprawl. That's because of legislation introduced by a bipartisan group of Nevada lawmakers in Congress. It's also backed by the Democratic governor of the state. and would allow the federal government to sell about 30,000 acres of public lands outside the city to developers. The goal is to build more affordable housing as Las Vegas keeps growing. Forecasts say the city might add a million people in the coming decades. But Christine Hess with the nonprofit Nevada Housing Coalition says a big barrier to that growth is the lack of availability of land, the lack of affordability of land. That's because Las Vegas is surrounded by public lands. Which we love for recreation purposes, of course, but from a growth perspective, it's inhibitive, and that includes for affordable housing development. Las Vegas isn't alone. Federal public lands make up about half of the Mountain West, which means they're off limits to real estate development. And now the region's housing crisis is pushing politicians to suggest opening up some of those public lands. That includes leaders in Nevada and a far-right gubernatorial candidate in Idaho. We can either build up or we can build out. That's Amund Bundy at a campaign event last summer. His name might sound familiar. A few years ago, he led the takeover of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. And now he's a long-shot candidate for governor of Idaho. One of his platforms? Selling off public lands to build housing. This crisis is simply a supply and demand issue. To create affordable housing for the young and the old alike, we simply need more supply. And to have more supply, we need to take our lands back. But this idea of selling off vast tracts of public lands isn't popular in many parts of the West. There have been bills introduced in Congress to stop it and large rallies against the idea, like this one inside of Montana's state capitol in 2019. They say these lands belong to every American, not just people who live nearby. For most of the Mountain West, that argument has pretty much put a halt to this idea of selling them off. The exception is Nevada. Over the past two decades, federal lawmakers there have sporadically passed bills allowing the government to do just that. And they don't get a ton of pushback. 
Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto introduced this year's lands bill. She says it makes sense in Nevada because the state has so much public land. Over 80 percent of the land is owned by the federal government. That is unique. It's more than any other state in the West. And while she bristles at being compared to a far-right activist like Ammon Bundy, she also scoffs at the idea that the feds should keep control of all that land. If that was the case, our Vegas Valley and all of our other communities would not have grown. There would be no economic development. There would be no housing. Back in Hidden Valley, environmentalist Kyle Rohrink thinks these proposals survive here because of the unique local culture. There is a recreation community here, but because you ha- also have something like the Las Vegas Strip in your backyard, that often overshadows you know, all of these amazing wonders that we have surrounding us. People here don't get outside as much. And when they do, it's more to established recreation areas like Lake Mead or the giant red rocks west of town, not into the middle of the Mojave Desert. But housing advocates and Nevada leaders are betting they'll come if it's filled with affordable homes instead of yucca and mesquite. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Nate Hedgie. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more at our website, KUNC.org. exhibit at the Greeley History Museum puts the spotlight on the importance of voting to create lasting change in society. The exhibit stems from last year's celebrations of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which officially granted women the vote. Although in Colorado, women had fought for and won voting rights more than two decades earlier. The collection was created in partnership with the League of Women Voters of Greeley-Weld County, and highlights the organization's work and impact on the local community. To learn more, we met up for a tour with Holly Berg, curator of exhibits for the museum. The title's a bit of a mouthful. It's called Empowering Voters, Defending Democracy, the League of Women Voters of Greeley Weld County. All of these items, well, they're a combination of items that were collected and loaned to us by the local League of Women Voters, but some of them are our collection items as well. And that's kind of the purpose behind the exhibit program that we do called Curator's Corner. This is a Curator's Corner exhibit. We invite groups and individuals to come and curate their own display um, using a combination of their items and our own. So the um, a group of wonderful, outstanding women from the local League of Women Voters came and we worked for months together to create this display. So when someone comes into this exhibit, where is the best place to start? Oh my goodness, right inside the door. <laughs> so um, You're wasting no space. Yeah, no, we crammed a lot in this gallery with the eye-catching tea towel that is a reproduction of a poster that was published in about the 1920s. It says a woman living here has registered to vote, thereby assuming the responsibility of citizenship. (laughs) You can imagine that, you know, proud women hung these outside their homes or in their windows, and they may have even convinced other women to vote, uh, register to vote if they saw those. So yeah, it starts right off here with kind of an introduction to the concept of what the League of Women Voters is. And then we go into their history and in Greeley and nationally. And then we have profiles of a few of the prominent members throughout the decades. This section is about their advocacy and action, what they've 
done to affect life locally. Uh, a lot of people don't realize, I didn't realize before I did this, just how wide and um, deep their advocacy goes. It covers so many topics. There are plenty of items on display here from local voter guide pamphlets to a tiny Susan B. Anthony doll. I asked Holly if she has a favorite among this collection. Actually, the baseball cap is my favorite because of the story it tells. So it's a baseball cap I see LWVA, I assume that's League of Women Voters. What is significant about this? So it's significant because it dates to about 1974, and uh, it comes from the era when the very first male members of the League of Women Voters um, were allowed to join. So now, um, of course, today it is an organization for everyone, regardless of gender identity or status or anything like that. Um, they welcome everyone's input. But of course, before 1974, they didn't quite welcome men. <laughs> so we have this baseball cap here, and then we have um, a picture from the Greeley Tribune from 1974 oh. of the first male, menu, male member. I have to say I'm really drawn to this glass box titled Ballot Box. Mm, yes, that one is an object from our uh, City of Greeley Museum's collection, actually, and it's standing right next to a mannequin dressed to resemble a suffragist, as if she's placing her ballot in there. But um, I love that she's wearing this sash of gold, white, and purple. It makes me want to maybe sash up when I go to vote. Yeah, you absolutely should. <laughs> yeah, so that sash in particular is um, an item from the League of Women Voters, and they wore those sashes to several events in 2020 to commemorate the uh, 100th anniversary. But this one is a reproduction. It's not an original from 1920, but it's meant to echo the photographs of all of the suffragists with their sashes and signs and all of that. But the ballot box next to it, it's an example from May 1901 is um, when the patent date is. And unfortunately, we don't have much about it in our records, but it is certainly a really cool example. The League's history of voter education spans decades, as evidenced by a timeline painted near the ceiling that documents the major moments. Um, so the timeline around the top is just kind of meant to bring everything together. Um, we worked to develop this timeline with not only local benchmarks and milestones, but also national ones as well to kind of put everything in context. The exhibit doesn't flow chronologically, though. It is separated by theme. So, like I said, this wall is advocacy in action. This wall is voter services, and that kind of continues around the back, talking about what the League does to support and educate voters today. Holly notes that some of that work to educate and empower voters here in northern Colorado has been recognized at the national level. We are looking at a certificate. It reads, the League of Women Voters of the United States Certificate of Merit to the League of Women Voters of Greeley Weld County for promoting first Greeley public transportation system in May of 1981. So that just is an example of the local advocacy that they undertake. And they were recognized by the national organization for doing this. So the way they kind of work is, um, it's outlined on here, but essentially they assemble teams, whole teams of people who go out in the community and interview about a particular topic. And they decide to conduct these in-depth studies and only then do they undertake any sort of advocacy or change 
or recommend change to local government or that sort of thing. Um, they don't take on any issues lightly, especially if you hear in the news or if you hear anywhere that the League of Women Voters has taken an official position on something, know that that doesn't happen lightly. That has, that's the result of years and sometimes decades of study. It seems like a focus of this exhibit is about the power of the vote. Is that fair to say? And, and what do you hope people who come to, to look at this exhibit take away from it? That is fair to say, and I, I hate to sound too cliche, but um, don't waste your vote. That you can see from the timeline that different groups of people have fought so hard to achieve their right to vote, and different groups of people have achieved it at different times, and some people still haven't. And to throw away something that we take for granted when other people are trying so hard to fight for it, it just seems silly. <laughs> of course, voting is an exercise that depends on people participating. And so the exhibit does have one way for guests to make their voices heard. Well, there is a little voting interactive in this exhibit. Okay. It asks you to respond to the question, should voting be mandatory? Mm. So we're waiting to see the results of that poll over there. That was Holly Burr curator of exhibits for the City of Greeley Museums. Empowering Voters, Defending Democracy, the League of Women Voters of Greeley-Weld County will be on display at the Greeley History Museum through April of 2022. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we explore the future of the arts in Denver and Colorado following the reopening of the Martin Building at the Denver Art Museum. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Thank you.